Welcome to Nutrition Assessment. In this episode, we have part two of the pre-recorded content for week 14 of the semester. As you recall, the class voted to have double the pre-recorded content this week. So this is part two. You don't have to listen to it today, which is Monday. Um, You can hold off and listen to it later in the week. But I wanted to make it available for anyone who is driving home for the holidays or for the break and um, wanted to listen to the podcast on the way. This one is a little bit longer. We're going to go over assessing blood sort of more in general and then bring it back to the nutritional anemias. And then the last chunk of this one, I talk about my dad's um, cancer story, really. And um, I haven't listened to it back yet, but um, you'll probably hear in my voice that it's it's an upsetting story for me to tell. Um, and I just want to reassure you that my dad's okay and I'm okay. Um, but cancer sucks and there's just not two ways around it. So here is um, this episode on basically a, a, a primer of sorts on hematology. And just please know that hematology is very, very complicated. All right, so assessing blood. Most of the biochemical values that we have discussed in this class and much of what you'll see in practice are values that come from blood draws. So a finger stick or a venous blood draw. So we're looking for various biomarkers in the blood to detect nutritional status or disease status. But blood itself, there's quite a number of things that are normally present in the blood. Um, So blood components that we would expect to find include red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, transport proteins, um, other things like electrolytes and minerals. And some of these things um, can give us a pretty good indicator of how the body is doing in terms of nutrition or disease status. But in a normal healthy state, we know what should be in the bloodstream in a normal healthy state. So we'll start there and then work into the anemias. So healthy blood, healthy blood should have red blood cells of a normal size, a normal shape, and a normal number of them, a normal count of red blood cells. White blood cells should also be of a normal size, a normal shape, and a count. And bear in mind, we'll get to this, but white blood cells, the term white blood cells refers to several different types of cells. In the blood, you've got platelets, which can be activated for blood clotting. And so healthy blood has a normal clotting time. We talked about this a little bit when we were talking about cardiovascular risk assessment, but we'll revisit it here. Um, You should be able to clot your blood within a normal amount of time. And in order to have healthy blood, those red blood cells are kind of a big deal. So we need iron stores within normal limits. And you can refer back to the previous videos for discussion of iron assessment. So this is what we would need to have healthy blood. So the cells, what are these cells we're talking about? So we've got red blood cells, white blood cells, platelets, and other things. But if we're looking just at production of blood cells, Production of blood cells begins with a stem cell and stem cells can mature into, broadly speaking, one of three types of cells. They can mature into red blood cells. They can mature into white blood cells, which again, there's many types of white blood cells, not just two, there's many types, Um, or they can mature into platelets. So what you see here is um, the, the stem cell 
which can then be differentiated into precursor cells. So a stem cell can differentiate into a myeloid stem cell, which then becomes a myeloid blast, which is then the basis for red blood cells, platelets, and some of the white blood cells. Or the stem cell could differentiate into a lymphoid stem cell and then into a lymphoid blast and into lymphocytes or another type of white blood cell. This is an oversimplification for the purposes of just getting you a baseline of what we're talking about when we're talking about the cells of the blood. There's a more detailed picture in your book on page 572, chapter 19. I would encourage you to, again, read that chapter. It's a really good one. Um, and look at that figure as well. All of the blood cells are produced in the um, bone marrow. And so again, you need healthy bone to have healthy blood cells. So there's, there's a lot going on when we're talking about healthy blood. So how do we assess blood status? You would start with a very standard blood draw called a complete blood count. So a complete blood count is really helpful if you're looking for any evidence of anemia or infection or blood disorders or cancers of the blood. Blood in general, you can see here, blood is about 55% plasma. So the aqueous portion of the blood, which contains um, other um, proteins or um, gases and other small components are found there. And then you have about 45% of the blood is the red blood cells. And then somewhere in between here, about 1% is the white blood cells and platelets. So if you, have a, if you have a blood draw and they run a complete blood count, that means they're checking for the number of red blood cells or erythrocytes, number of white blood cells or leukocytes, thrombocytes, also known as platelets, checking your hemoglobin and hematocrit status and your MCH and MCV. So a complete blood count is something you could have drawn at an annual physical just to get a sense of what is, what is your baseline um, health. So erythrocytes, let's start with erythrocytes. Erythrocytes are commonly known as red blood cells. So erythropoiesis is the formation of red blood cells, which again, begins in the bone marrow. Hemolysis would be the um, unplanned rupture or destruction of red blood cells. Red blood cells do actually, um, they have programmed cell death called eripitosis. Now eripitosis is pre-programmed red blood cell death. That's planned. Um, and that's fine because the average lifespan of a red blood cell is about 120 days. So that, that planned cell death is, is one thing and it's normal part of a healthy, normal, you know, turnover, but hemolysis would be rupture or destruction of red blood cells that was unplanned. So normal ranges for erythrocytes, we refer to them typically as 4.5 to 6.2 or 4.5 to, um, or four to 4.5 for females down here. But note, it's not that you have 4.5 red blood cells. It's that you have 4.5 to 6.2 trillion red blood cells per liter of blood. Um, so you have quite a number of red blood cells at any given time. Leukocytes. Leukocytes is the broad term for white blood cells. Um, this is what you think of when you talk about your immune response. So the white blood cells or the leukocytes are those that kick into gear in the presence of infection or just in the presence of any 
everyday invader that the body is trying to fight off. But white blood cells include several subcategories. So it includes basophils, eosinophils, lymphocytes, which can then be broken down into T cells, B cells, and natural killer cells, monocytes, and neutrophils. So production of white blood cells increases in response to an infection. So if you were to look at someone's um, complete blood count and they were outside of the normal range, which here again, it's 4.5 to 11, but it's 4.5 to 11 billion cells per liter. So if you're outside of this normal range, um, if you were above 11 billion cells per liter, you're looking at most probably an infection. And if you are below 4.5 white blood cells, 4.5 billion white blood cells per liter, then you have the possibility of a leukemia or other disorder of um, of the blood. So thrombocytes, thrombocytes are also referred to as platelets. Thrombocytes are actually pieces of cells. They're not whole cells, but th- that's what they're, they're there for. They're, they serve that purpose um, because they're involved in clotting and wound healing. So they're very important in platelet disorders. Thrombocytopenia is a condition in which there is a lower than normal number of platelets in the blood. And because platelets are involved in clotting, if there's a lower than, number, lower than normal number of platelets, that may result in easy bruising or excessive bleeding from wounds or even bleeding from mucous membranes and other tissues. And then von Willebrand disease is a bleeding disorder. It's a genetic condition that also affects your, your body, the blood's ability to clot. And if your blood does not clot, you can have heavy, hard to stop bleeding after an injury. So the normal range for thrombocytes is between 150 and 400 billion thrombocytes per liter. This is one that you would also watch in the instance of any kind of, um, I hate the term, but the term blood thinning medication. Recall that the blood does not get thinner. You delay clotting time um, or in the absence of vitamin K, you would have difficulty clotting. Prothrombin time. Okay, so prothrombin time. We talked about blood thinning medications like warfarin or um, what's the one? Eliquis is the new one. Um, Prothrombin time is how much time it takes for blood plasma to clot. Those medications like warfarin are commonly referred to or in a layperson way referred to as blood thinners. The blood does not get thinner, but it takes longer to clot. So if your patients say they're taking a blood thinner, do not correct them. That's fine. They know what they're talking about and you know what they're talking about. It's important to me that you understand as a dietetics professional that the blood is not any thinner. It is taking longer to clot. So you measure this, you measure the time it takes for blood plasma to clot measured in seconds, which is then interpreted in the international normalized ratio or INR. So the normal range for prothrombin time is between 11 and 13.5 seconds or an INR of 0.8 to 1.1. So warfarin specifically, that particular medication that delays clotting time, the international normalized ratio is actually between two and three. An anemia is any condition in which the body does not have enough healthy red blood cells. So when we talk about nutritional anemias, we're talking about, um, we have a nutrient deficiency, 
that is causing the red blood cells to either be too big or too small or the wrong color. Well, we say the wrong color deficient in hemoglobin would be a better description, but a a cell that is deficient in hemoglobin is also not as bright of a red. So it's just considered hypochromic. So a nutritional anemia, any condition in which the body does not have enough or correctly formed red blood cells and red blood cells, kind of a big deal because they provide oxygen to all of the body tissues. So when we're talking about anemias, I'm going to revisit this slide. Um, because some of the vocabulary around this, it helps to break it down. So micro means too small, macro means too big, hypo, hypo could be beneath or below like a hypodermic needle. You're, you're giving a, if you're doing a blood draw, it's a hypodermic needle. It goes beneath the skin. Um, but hypo can also mean less than normal. Cytic is the, um, abbreviation. Well, it's, it's the piece of the word that means cell and then chromic means color. So you put all these together when you're looking at normal red blood cells, we have normal red blood cells here. Normal red blood cells should have a mean corpuscular volume between 80 and 100 femtoliters. They have this disc shape that someone's flattened out. They're a bright red color um, and they have adequate hemoglobin in order to um, transport oxygen. There's also enough of them. Okay. So that would be normal red blood cells. What you see pictured here, this one is normocytic anemia. That means the cells themselves are fine. They're the right size, they're the right shape, but there's not enough of them. They're simply too few cells. Microcytic anemia, microcytic anemia, we now have red blood cells that are too small. The size is less than 80 femtoliters. And in this case, we also have hypochromic anemia. You can see that they're faded. They're not as bright red. Macrocytic anemia means the cells are too large. So in this case, the mean corpuscular volume is greater than 100 femtoliters. Something has gone wrong in the development of these cells such that they didn't actually finish um, forming. So if you think back to the cells with the stem cell and the blasts, those are very large. And actually in the production of red blood cells, the, the completed cell ends up smaller than the stem cell or the blast that it started from. But in macrocytic anemia, you end up with a cell that is too large. So going back through, we're gonna highlight and compare each of these. So microcytic, these are too small compared to the normal red blood cells and they're hypochromic. They're lacking in hemoglobin, which gives it that red color. So microcytic or microcytosis means you have abnormally small red blood cells The cut point is again, 80 femtoliters. So if the mean corpuscular volume is less than 80 femtoliters, we're looking at microcytic anemia. And again, uh, mean corpuscular volume is the volume of the average red blood cell. So the hematocrit, which is the um, volume of the total blood portion, um, how much of that is red blood cells, hematocrit divided by the count of red blood cells, that's your mean corpuscular volume. So if the mean corpuscular volume is less than 80 femtoliters, it's microcytic anemia or microcytosis. And we have decreased circulating hemoglobin. These cells are too small. They can't carry as much hemoglobin. um, And so they have that lighter or faded um, color or appearance. So hypochromic would mean abnormally low levels of hemoglobin. 
Um, here we're looking at a deficiency as defined by the mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration or MCHC. Um, and the cut points there are in um, less, less than 32 grams of hemoglobin per liter or um, less or a mean, oh, I'm sorry. So we've got mean backup, mean corpuscular hemoglobin concentration or mean corpuscular hemoglobin. And the mean corpuscular hemoglobin would be less than 27 picograms. So microcytic or microcytosis and hypochromic would describe the cells that you see here. We've already covered how iron deficiency anemia can cause microcytic hypochromic anemia. There are other nutrients that can cause this type of anemia. However, it's not just iron that can lead to iron deficiency that can lead to this type of anemia. On this slide, we're gonna emphasize macrocytic cells versus normal cells. So now the cells are too large. Their color is okay, but the size is too big. So that mean corpuscular volume is now greater than 100 femtoliters. These cells are too large and they are also less efficient at transporting um, oxygen throughout the body. So when we look at nutritional anemias, here again are all, all the different types of anemias that we can have in terms of what the red blood cells look like. Macrocytic anemias can be caused by a deficiency in cyanocobalamin, folate, thiamine, or pyroxidine. Microcytic anemias, if you look at microcytic anemias, microcytic anemias can be caused both by deficiencies or by toxicities. So a deficiency in protein can cause microcytic anemia. A deficiency in ascorbate, vitamin A, peroxidine, copper, or manganese can cause microcytic anemia. And of course, we've already covered a deficiency in iron can cause microcytic anemia. However, we can also have toxicities of some um, minerals. And notice copper is on both lists. A deficiency in copper can cause microcytic anemia and a toxicity of copper could cause microcytic anemia. Part of the reason for this is that we do need some, but not too much copper. And if we have too much copper, zinc, lead, cadmium, or other heavy metals, they may block the absorption of iron or may be absorbed in place of iron, leading to a secondary iron deficiency. You can also have hemolytic anemias. So a hemolytic anemia means, think back to that slide where I talked about hemolysis. The planned cell death for red blood cells is erythropoiesis, but an unplanned cell death, an unplanned lysing or breaking of the heme, so hemolytic anemia, would be the loss of red blood cells, um, possibly for a nutritional source from a vitamin E deficiency could lead to hemolytic anemia or vitamin E toxicity can cause hemolytic anemia. So hemolytic anemia, you might, you might end up with something like this, this normocytic anemia where the red blood cells that are left are the right size, shape, and color, but there aren't enough of them. When we're looking at signs and symptoms of anemias, part of the difficulty in diagnosing any nutritional anemia is that some of these signs and symptoms are rather general or vague, and they can overlap with any number of other diseases or disorders. But when you're doing your nutrition focused physical exam, you can look for things like kylosis and glossitis. You can look for the spoon shaped fingernails. You can look for pale sclera, and you can also have those biochemical values drawn to help confirm any potential B vitamin deficiency or iron deficiency. 
So the anemias, if you're going simply off of signs and symptoms, it's going to be very difficult to diagnose which nutrient is causing these symptoms because all of the anemias can cause fatigue, lethargy, cold extremities, muscle aches, difficulty concentrating, sleepiness, irritability, general malaise, or as I like to call it, this section is what um, studying for finals during fall semester, right? That's, those are all the signs and symptoms of studying for finals, I think. You can also have GI distress, reproductive dysfunction, cardiovascular sequelae, including palpitation, so um, rapid heart rate, tachycardia, um, difficulty breathing and chest pain, tingling and numbness in the extremities, and um, that can be seen particularly in pernicious anemia, which is B12 and B12 deficiency. And then I have this note over here to remind me also pica. So um, I believe I've told this story already when talking about collecting a 24 hour recall, but the, the patient I had once upon a time who it turned out had an iron deficiency and we picked up on it because in asking her about her dietary intake, this particular patient was able to tell me the number and ply and brand preference she had for the toilet paper that she was eating. So pica is a craving for non-food items, which can be caused by iron deficiency as well. So with all these clinical signs and symptoms of anemia, it's one thing to find a physical manifestation of anemia. You're going to have to pair it with some biochemical values to determine exactly which anemia you're looking at. All right, so folate, my favorite B vitamin, because I am such a nerd, I have favorites among the B vitamins. Folate comes in two forms, folate and folic acid. They're not interchangeable. Folate is the food form. Folic acid is the supplement form. So folic acid is actually the more stable of the two and the more bioavailable. We absorb it more readily. Folic, folate is reduced form found naturally in foods and tissues. So good food sources of folate include things like mushrooms and green vegetables. Raw foods have higher folate content than cooked foods. We also have folate fortification of our foods here in the United States. Bioavailability is about 50% in the folate form, though excessive heat, light, and oxygen will destroy folate in the foods. So folate fortification, as of 1998, the Food and Drug Administration mandated that manufacturers add folic acid to enriched breads, cereals, flours, cornmeal, pasta, rice, and other grain products. And the reason they did this is because folate deficiency can inhibit DNA synthesis and impair cell division. So we're gonna talk about the role of folate and how that relates back to nutritional anemias. Um, but folate has a role to play in um, rapid growth or rapid cell division. So if you are lacking in folate, then you have um, impaired DNA synthesis, kind of a big deal. So marginal folate intake during pregnancy increases the risk of the infant being born with a neural tube defect because that folate is needed typically before a woman knows that she is pregnant. Um, a great number of pregnancies are unintended pregnancies. And so development of that neural tube um, happens um, before a woman necessarily knows that she is pregnant. So the fortification program was projected to increase folic acid intakes by about 100 micrograms per day, 
um, but has actually increased the mean folic acid intakes by about 190 micrograms per day. And across the board, this has increased the red blood cell folate concentration by about 50% in studies and decreased the rate of neural tube defects by about 36%. So largely a successful program. When it comes to folate metabolism, so there's a lot of details here. We'll, we'll get to the point here in a second, but the polyglutamate forms of folate are hydrolyzed to the monoglutamate form. Folic acid is already in the monoglutamate form. So from the monoglutamate form, it's converted to tetrahydrofolate or THF, and then a methyl group is added. So a methyl group, remember, is that carbon with three hydrogens or CH3. When you add the methyl group, it becomes 5-methyl-tetrahydrofolate, which is the inactive form. And then when it is active, it's 5-methyl-tetrahydrofolate reductase. Um, but I'm getting ahead of myself. So the methyl group added, the 5-methyl-tetrahydrofolate is inactive and it's circulated to the liver via the blood. Little folate is stored. We can deplete our folate stores pretty quickly. It is a water-soluble vitamin. Um, but that tetrahydrofolate, that is a coenzyme for a great many reactions. It's involved in the transfer of methyl groups, that's CH3. And so transfer of methyl groups is essential for amino acid metabolism. So converting histidine to glutamate um, and the metabolism of both serine and glycine, um, creating methionine from homocysteine, and also the synthesis of nucleic acid precursor molecules. So basically we need folate in the form of tetrahydrofolate so we can transfer the methyl groups in order to create amino acids from essential amino acids, put those amino acids to use and to create DNA, right? So we need it at the most cellular level possible. We've got to have this folate. So folate actually also has quite a few interactions with other nutrients. And we'll talk about this in the next video. It is synergistic with vitamin B12. So we'll talk about that in the next video. We do have minor stores of folate. It is a water-soluble vitamin. Um, so any excess would be excreted in the urine and feces. Recommended dietary intakes are listed here. Um, they do go up during pregnancy and lactation with a tolerable upper intake limit of 1000 micrograms per day. If, however, someone is folate deficient over time, this leads to megaloblastic macrocytic anemia. So macrocytic means the cells are too big. Megaloblastic means that the cells themselves are immature. So the red blood cells remain immature. Think back to the slide that had the um, stem cell and then the blasts, and then it develops into the red blood cell. Without folate, that stem cell cannot develop fully into a healthy red blood cell, and you end up with megaloblastic macrocytic anemia. So in this case, the cells are too large and contain organelles that are not found in mature red blood cells. Those at risk of macrocytic anemia are um, people with alcoholism, people with intestinal diseases, Certain medications interfere with the metabolism of folate. Methotrexate is a medication that comes to mind. Um, methotrexate actually specifically targets folate metabolism because folate is needed for that rapid turnover of cells. And so methotrexate is a medication that is used in some cancer treatments as well as other diseases. 
Um, the elderly are at greater risk of folate deficiency, and there are some genetic um, variations that can cause risk for folate deficiency as well. So in this case, um, folate deficiency is commonly seen in pregnancy or in infants, um, infants who would then either be breastfed from folate deficient mothers or somehow fed a formula that was um, deficient. That's not probable. Um, stores are stores of, of folate are depleted within two to four months of a folate deficient diet. Um, and serum folate really reflects recent intake. So it's difficult to assess folate deficiency, um, simply from looking at serum values. So you really need to be looking more at the mean corpuscular volume, the size of the cell. Um, as well as things like the hemoglobin, because again, if the cell is not fully mature, it's not as efficient at carrying hemoglobin. Um, and so you're looking for things like the size of the cell, the ability to carry hemoglobin. And then we'll get into, and in the next video, folate and B12 are both so tightly interrelated that it's very difficult to differentiate a folate deficiency from a B12 deficiency. So there are some very specific assays we can look at in terms of figuring out which B vitamin is actually deficient. All right, so B12. B12, as mentioned in the previous video, is closely related to folate, but it is a distinctly different vitamin. B12 contains cobalt, thus the name cobalamin. Um, it also has several nitrogen atoms. And what's fascinating about B12 is that it's made only by bacteria and fungi, but not any bacteria or fungi that we generally consume. It's also not made by the microorganisms in our GI tract. So the best sources of B12 are meat and meat products, basically animals that have consumed the bacteria and fungi that we don't want to eat. Um, are able to um, then incorporate the B12 into their tissues. And so meat and meat products are the best sources of B12. Dairy also contains B12. It contains less, but it might be more bioavailable. And then for vegetarians or vegans, there are some fortified foods and supplements are an option. B12 is my second favorite B vitamin, folate being my favorite because it's so dang complicated. So B12 for digestion, absorption, transport, and storage in order to, so my mantra from 3100, you are what you absorb and B12 is difficult to absorb. So briefly to go over this, after ingesting B12, you need a high enough stomach acid content to break the B12 from the protein to which it is bound. It then needs to bind to an R complex, the B12, and then R complex then in the small intestine is broken off from the R complex. And at that point, it binds to intrinsic factor, which by the way, intrinsic factor is made by the stomach, but it doesn't bind to B12 until it's in the intestine. And then the B12 intrinsic factor complex is what's actually absorbed into the intestinal cell in the ileum which then circulates to the liver via the blood. And while there is significant storage and retention within the body, primarily in the liver, it is a water soluble vitamin. And we will um, find ourselves deficient um, after a prolonged period of time without adequate B12. 
So basically any alteration to the GI tract is going to impact our absorption of B12. If you decrease the amount of stomach or the amount of stomach, well, that's true too. If you decrease the amount of stomach, if you have a gastric bypass, that's going to impair your ability to, um, absorb B12. I was originally going to say, if you decrease the amount of stomach acid, um, that will impair your ability to absorb B12. If you lose the ability to produce intrinsic factor, that will impair your absorption of B12. And if any portion of the small intestine is resected or removed, that would also impair absorption of B12. So you really need your whole GI tract working to absorb B12 optimally. So gastric bypass, gastrectomy, resection of the small intestine, any of those things are going to impair absorption. Functions of vitamin B12, here's just a couple. There's more than the ones listed here. It is a coenzyme in the conversion of L-methylmalonyl-CoA to succinyl-CoA, which essentially means we need it to use amino acids and fatty acids for ATP production. So B vitamins do not give you energy. Energy comes from macronutrients, but B vitamins are needed in order to use that energy, to metabolize that energy. So we need B12 to be able to use the energy from amino acids and fatty acids to produce ATP. And it's also a coenzyme in the conversion of homocysteine to methionine or methylcobalamin, um, which allows the body to use folate. So here's that piece talking about how interrelated folate and B12 are. So we have over here um, tetrahydrofolate, which is the inactive form of folate. In order for it to be um, used as 5-methyltetrahydrofolate, we have to have B12 in the middle here to help spin this cycle, basically. So, um, and also we're going, I'm going both ways here. So 5-methyltetrahydrofolate transfers a methyl group to B12 and then B12 transfers a methyl group to homocysteine, which then forms methionine. And here's that methyl group over here. Um, methionine then is also involved as a methyl donor in relatively a hundred so reactions. Um, so this conversion of homocysteine to methionine is important. Um, but basically in order to fully be able to use folate, we've got to have B12. Where this becomes particularly problematic is that you can actually mask a B12 deficiency. You can make a, you can hide a B12 deficiency with an excess of folate. So if you're looking at a possible nutritional anemia, it's very important to discern whether folate is deficient or B12 is deficient or heaven help me if both are deficient. Um, to see what the root of the problem is because B12 deficiency, not only does it cause megaloblastic macrocytic anemia, which under a microscope would look the same as a folate deficiency, which also causes megaloblastic macrocytic anemia. Um, but a B12 deficiency can also cause neuropathy. And so that would be nerve damage. B12 is required to maintain the myelin sheath sheath of nerves. And so, um, stores can actually be depleted with not enough B12. It, it could, you could have severe nerve damage because a B12 deficiency can be masked by folate. Um, it could actually happen over the course of several years. So 
B12 deficiency is usually caused by inadequate absorption. And again, think back to that previous slide, how complicated it is to absorb B12. Pernicious anemia would be a lack of intrinsic factor. And I've got more details on that on the next slide. Um, but basically the stomach cells that produce intrinsic factor in that case are destroyed. And so to treat this type of anemia, it doesn't matter how much B12 you, in, you ingest orally, you will not be able to absorb it without intrinsic factor. So in this case, it would need to be treated with monthly intramuscular injections. So at risk of deficiency would be um, those who follow a strict vegan diet um, because B12 is only from animal sources. Also infants who are breastfed by B12 deficient mothers and the elderly, because as we age, our stomachs both produce less acid and less intrinsic factor. So signs and symptoms are similar to what we see in any other anemia, fatigue, difficulty sleeping, numbness, memory loss, but the severe neurological disturbances, that one is more specific to B12. So pernicious anemia, I've got it across the top of the slide here. Um, pernicious anemia is actually an autoimmune disease and it affects the gastric mucosa, the cells of the stomach um, and causes atrophy of those cells. So with the destructure of those cells, we have less stomach acid and an inability to produce intrinsic factor, which means we cannot absorb B12. So it's pernicious because no matter how much B12 you give someone, if they are unable to absorb it, then the anemia will persist. So those at risk, um, B12 deficiency actually causes a secondary folate deficiency. So let me back up and show. You can actually have enough folate on board, but if you're lacking B12, you can't use the folate. And so the body would manifest, it would appear as though you have a folate deficiency, even though in fact you have a B12 deficiency. Um, and if you overdose with folate, you can actually hide a B12 deficiency. So again, we've got to know which B vitamin is deficient. And if it is multiple B vitamins, that's important to know. Those over the age of 50 are at higher risk um, due to the decrease in production of stomach acid. And then also vegans may need to choose fortified foods or supplements. And then again, you've got to really have a fully functioning GI tract in order to absorb B12. So one functional marker for both folate and B12 deficiencies is elevated plasma homocysteine. So I'm going to scroll back up again. So if we go back up here to this slide, you see homocysteine is converted to methionine in the presence of both folate and B12. So if folate or B12 are missing, I should say folate and or B12 are missing, then the levels of homocysteine begin to accumulate and that can be an indicator of folate and or B12 deficiency. The trouble with that is that there are other um, issues that cause elevated homocysteine. So while B12 and folate will lead to elevated hom plasma homocysteine, um, that's not a specific marker of B12 or folate deficiency. 
So for B12 assessment, you can look directly at serum concentrations. Although here again, serum concentrations are more reflective of recent intake. You can also look at serum methylmalonyl-CoA since that is um, dependent on B12 and methylmalonic acid and homocysteine concentrations because both are elevated in the absence of B12 and something called the deoxyuridine suppression test. So these are all very specific tests for looking more at B12, but my favorite test and the reason why I think B12 is so cool is the Schilling test. So the Schilling test for B12, this one is done in various stages to look for the cause, the root cause of the B12 deficiency. So the premise here is that if the person is deficient in B12, if they're totally lacking in B12, then if we can replenish their B12, then any B12 that is absorbed should appear in the urine. So let's walk that through. If you actually absorbed your B12, it went, if it went from the stomach to the small intestine, absorbing the intestinal cells, it goes into the bloodstream, gets filtered to the kidneys, and you didn't need the B12 because you had enough, then the B12 would come out in the urine. Okay. So stage one of the Schilling test for someone who is B12 deficient is to give them an injection, an intramuscular injection of B12. We're going to bypass the GI tract altogether give them an intramuscular injection of B12. Now we know they have enough B12. It saturates all of the places in the body that would otherwise trap the incoming B12. And then you give them an oral dose of radio labeled. So isotopically labeled B12 and wait and see where it shows up. So you've given them a dose of um, isotopically labeled B12 and then you collect urine and you hope to see it in the urine because if you see that B12 in the urine, that means that it was actually, um, it, it was split, you know, I'm sorry, it wasn't split from protein because it was just an oral dose, but it bound to the R complex. It then bound to the intrinsic factor. It was absorbed. Everything is working fine. And the cause of the anemia in that case, in stage one, the cause of the anemia would be simply inadequate intake. Okay, we can correct that. If instead none of that B12 shows up in the urine, but we already gave you an intramuscular injection, so we know your B12 stores are adequate, then that means it was not absorbed, right? If all of the intrinsic factor instead appears in the feces, it just means the intrinsic factor. If all of the B12 rather ends up in the feces, it just means it was not absorbed at all. So in stage two, we would add intrinsic factor. So we would say, we're going to give you an oral dose of B12 and we'll give you intrinsic factor. And if that is absorbed, if it shows up in the urine, then we know that you're lacking intrinsic factor. So we can correct that. But if that doesn't work, then you do it again with antibiotics because bacterial overgrowth syndromes can actually impede absorption of B12 as well. And if that doesn't work, then you try it with pancreatic enzymes because the pancreatic enzymes need are needed to release B12 from the R complex, from the R protein. So there's multiple steps to this test because we're trying to figure out at what point in this very complicated system did it break down? Is it that there's not enough B12 coming in? Okay, then it should all show up in the urine at the first step. Is it that there's not enough intrinsic factor produced? okay, then it should all show up in the urine at the second step. 
is it that we have bacterial overgrowth? Okay, then it should show up in the urine after the third step. And if it's still coming out in the feces and not being absorbed, then we need to look for the lack of pancreatic enzymes, perhaps caused by pancreatitis. Basically, it's complicated. And I just think that's really cool. When you are differentiating folate deficiency from B12 deficiency, another way you can look at this is um, to look specifically at total homocysteine and methylmalonic acid. So in either case, either a folate deficiency or a B12 deficiency, total homocysteine will be elevated. But if you're looking at a folate deficiency exclusively, then methylmalonic acid would be within normal limits while homocysteine is elevated. But a B12 deficiency, you would have elevated methylmalonic acid and elevated total homocysteine. However, to complicate this further, both methylmalonic acid and total homocysteine are increased by impaired renal function. So there's a lot of pieces you need to look at to figure out which B vitamin is deficient. And the biggest thing to remember is that we need to look very closely to see if it is a folate deficiency and a B12 deficiency, because if you simply correct for a folate deficiency, you may in fact be masking an underlying B12 deficiency and um, basically not causing further damage, but allowing further damage to continue. Okay, so one more story that um, is my dad's story, but I have permission to share it, that I think helps pull together a lot of the concepts that we've just covered. So quick reminder, when we're talking about healthy blood, we want red blood cells of a normal size, shape, and count. And a major component of red blood cells is the iron content. We want the iron stores within normal limits. We want white blood cells of normal size, shape, and count. And we want a normal clotting time. Those are, those are what I would call, in my totally novice opinion, the big three for healthy blood. I am not a hematologist, as evidenced by the story I'm about to tell you. Um, but from my very limited experience, um, these are some of the biggest things that we're looking for in terms of having healthy blood. So what happens when all this goes haywire? So my dad, we're going to lay out the timeline and sort of just tell the story of how this went down for my dad in December of 2017, which was somehow three years ago. Um, my dad went for a routine physical and his physician found using a complete blood count. So that assay that just looks for presence of anemia or, um, infection did a complete blood count and found that his blood platelets were low. So the other word for platelets is thrombocytes. So he had thrombocytopenia. And so his primary care physician said, well, that's not normal. Let's have you follow up with a hematologist. So my dad went to a hematologist and had more blood work done and that was inconclusive. And then they wanted a, um, bone marrow biopsy. So they wanted to, to, to take a sample from his bone marrow from that biopsy, that initial biopsy, he was initially diagnosed with acute myelomonocytic leukemia or AMML. And, um, <laughs> There's so much to this story. I'm going to try and keep it just the clinical side of things, but the hospital where he was diagnosed actually got his diagnosis wrong um, and they could not treat it. So he had to be referred to Ohio state. It turns out that comprehensive cancer center across the street is pretty darn comprehensive. 
So um, several sagas and just hours of storytelling later, but on the calendar, it looks like one month later, uh, February of 2018, he was accurately diagnosed with chronic myelomonocytic leukemia. And if you're interested in the difference between the two, it's basically, my understanding of it basically is that chronic myelomonocytic leukemia is a myelomonocytic leukemia that has not yet progressed to the point of being acute. It's, it's complicated. Um, but what, is, what the heck does that mean? Well, I don't really have a perfect understanding of this. Um, my, my dad's cancer experience taught me great humility, um, because I, I really don't know everything. And I especially do not know hematology, but here is this graphic from the textbook that shows an overview of hematopoiesis or the formation of the blood cells. So you start with a stem cell, which can then differentiate into um, all these different types of cells. So you have lymphoid progenitor cells. So those lead to lymphocytes and you have myeloid progenitor cells, which lead to erythrocytes or red blood cells, platelets are down here, um, monocytes. So my dad had acute, well, no, it wasn't acute. It was chronic Milo. So here's myeloid monocytic leukemia. So there, my, my understanding is there was something wrong specifically with the formation of his monocytes. And yet the first blood value that was detected out of range was his platelets. I can't explain that. I don't know. But the myeloid progenitor cells can also produce eosinophils and mast cells, also known as basophils. So what the heck does all of that mean? Basically, when you're looking at leukemias, this, this experience taught me that leukemia is so many things. It's not, it's not one type of blood cancer. It's lots of types of blood cancers, depending on exactly where in the um, blood cell formation process things went wrong. So somewhere on this myeloid progenitor cells is my understanding. Somewhere in here, something went wrong for my dad. This had nothing to do with his nutrition. It's nothing he did or did not eat that caused cancer. Um, there's zero understanding of what causes chronic myelomonocytic leukemia. We don't know if there was something in his environment. We don't know if there was something in his genes. We just don't know what caused it. But what the... Very brilliant and lovely people in the James hematology unit did know was how to treat it. So essentially what they needed to do for my dad was just reset this entire system. They needed to wipe out all of my dad's cells and replace them with healthy stem cells. I thought that was going to mean he would get a bone marrow transplant because that was my very primitive understanding of how leukemias work is that you have to replace the bone marrow. Instead, my dad had a stem cell transplant, um, which is a process by which the donor um, takes some medication for several days leading up to the donation to increase their production of stem cells. And then they are hooked up to a machine for apheresis, which um, is a little bit like dialysis in that it takes the blood out of the body. It filters out just the stem cells and then puts everything else back in. So it turns out my dad has a younger sister who was a perfect match for a stem cell transplant. Thank goodness. 
Um, and so that's, that's where we were headed with this, but to get to the stem cell treatment, we first had to go through chemo. So from February to May of 2018, my dad had monthly outpatient chemo. Um, but he did go in every week for more lab tests, more blood values to see how he was responding to that chemo. Um, off the top of head, off the top of my head, I'm remembering that we tried to time our lives around his chemo treatments. Basically, there were there was a phase after each chemo treatment where he would be the most immunosuppressed. And so it was most important that we lay low and not go anywhere with him. But then there were other weeks where it was a little bit better. So like in May of 2018, we made a trip up to, um, to see his mom, his, my grandmother. Um, so we, we like squeezed in a trip before July. And now that I'm looking at this, he must've had chemo again in June leading up to July. So in July, the very beginning, of, oh no, that wasn't it. It was the end of June. He had massive, super nasty chemo. Okay. So this is like regular chemo, monthly outpatient chemo. He would go in, sit for a few hours, have his chemo and then go home leading up to the stem cell transplant. They had to give him, um, I'm just going to call it the super nasty chemo. He had to be inpatient in the hospital for a month. Um, starting with the super nasty chemo, because the goal of super nasty chemo was to knock out his entire immune system. And if your entire immune system has been laid bare and blasted away, you need to be in an environment that is as sterile and sanitized as you can possibly be. So when my dad was in the, um, inpatient room on, um, the 14th floor of the James, um, when we went to visit him, we had to wear a mask. So this was well before coronavirus was a concern. It was just, we're visiting a severely immunocompromised patient to walk into his room. You had to, um, do basic hand sanitizing and wear a mask. So when dad was getting super nasty chemo, the way, you know, it's working is by doing, um, daily blood draws to see that the red blood cells, the white blood cells, and the platelets are dropping below normal range. So we're just deliberately destroying those cells now. So we would have a count on his whiteboards. He'd walk in his room and he has the whiteboard with like the doctor's name, the nurse's name and all that jazz. And then underneath that, they would have his um, cell counts. And it's the weirdest experience ever, but we were cheering for those cell counts to drop because that meant that the chemo was working and his body would be ready for the stem cell transplant. So I went ahead and put the normal range here just for reference. I don't remember what the targets were that we were looking at except for thrombocytes. I do remember that my dad was cheering for his thrombocytes to go down harder than anything else. And the reason for that. So standard protocol for a patient who is inpatient in the hospital for prolonged periods of time is to be given a daily injection of heparin, which is that medication that delays clotting time to prevent clots. Because presumably if you are in a hospital bed for a prolonged period of time, days, weeks, or month at a time, months at a time for that matter, you're not getting very much movement. And so that puts you at increased risk of a clot, which could then travel to the lungs or the heart and cause death. So daily heparin injection, my dad was getting a daily heparin injection. And they'd give it to him in his stomach. 
once his platelets got low enough, once his platelets got below 50, I do remember this one. Once the platelets got below 50, he no longer had to get that heparin injection because with his platelets that low, with his thrombocytes that low, there was no risk of him clotting. He did not have enough thrombocytes left to clot. Um, so my dad was especially cheering to get rid of that daily heparin shot. A, because he didn't like the shot and B, his platelets were plummeting as he's getting this heparin shot. And so his stomach was just one giant bruise because he couldn't, he progressively couldn't clot. So his, it was, it was rough. We were, we were cheering for fewer and fewer um, cells. And I do remember the goal for thrombocytes was to get it below 50. They did also watch, I don't have it here, but they did also watch his hemoglobin and hematocrit. Um, I remember if it had fallen beneath eight grams per deciliter, then he would have received a red blood cell transfusion um, because yes, we're trying to wipe out his immune system. But if we inadvertently wipe out his body's ability to carry oxygen to tissues, um, then we don't have to worry about the cancer killing him because the treatment will have killed him. So he never did drop below eight. I think he was at nine though. His, his, his hemoglobin was pretty darn low. Um, so, all right. So we do the stem cell transplant. It actually went very well. Um, he spent another three or four weeks in the hospital after the transplant to basically, um, give his body a chance to, um, take on the new stem cells, take on the new immune system. And so he was able to leave the hospital at the end of July. As I recall, the first three months, he needed to stay very close to the hospital. If we had not lived so close to Ohio State in the first place, my parents would have had to stay in an apartment close to campus. You needed to be within a 30-minute drive of campus in case something went south so you could get back to campus or get back to the med center, I should say. Um, but we live close enough. He could just go home but he wasn't going outside. He wasn't going places. My dad loves to garden. He was not allowed to dig in the dirt because there's all kinds of microbes in the dirt that can make you very sick. If you have no immune system, it was, I mean, short version, it was awful. Cancer sucks. Um, but then, you know, six months out, it starts to look like we're, we're going to make it. Um, we're going to be okay. And then the saga continues. So in February of 2019, my dad was short of breath. He had difficulty walking down the hallway without um, needing to stop and catch his breath. So that was an emergency department trip, um, at which point they found that he had a pulmonary embolism. So recall that we knocked out all of his cells replace them with new cells. And that the original problem he had was thrombocytopenia. That was the first thing we detected had that low platelet count. Well, it turns out that cancer patients are at increased risk of having a pulmonary embolism post cancer treatment. And that is exactly what my dad had. He had a clot or several clots actually that had, um, I don't know if they formed in his lungs, but they got stuck in his lungs which made it very difficult for him to breathe, which meant he needed to go back on his favorite heparin. Um, so when he was admitted in February of 2019 with a pulmonary embolism, we started in the emergency department, but then he was admitted to an inpatient bed in the James for I think maybe 36 to 48 hours while they got him started on a heparin drip. So IV, an IV heparin drip to help clear out those clots. 
and then was sent home on an injectable. Um, I don't remember if it was heparin or something else, but it was an injectable medication to delay clotting time. And my mom who happens to be an RN got to be the one to administer that. So we were, we were back to, we, we didn't have cancer again, but we're still treating his blood to try to keep his blood from killing him. We want his blood to be healthy. Um, so when they did that, when they sent him home on that medication, they were still working out what the correct dose was going to be for his body, because we can look at pharmacogenomics and, and pharmacokinetics and, and the ways different bodies metabolize drugs differently. Um, but it turns out my dad's body was not as efficient at metabolizing that medication as perhaps was expected. So one of the things they told my dad was that if he had any kind of bleed that lasted for more than 15 minutes, he needed to come back to the emergency department to be evaluated. So he's on this medication that delays clotting time, which means you could have prolonged heavy bleeding. Any bleed greater than 15 minutes, he needs to go back to the emergency department. Well, my dad at that point was teaching some classes, some, some evening and night classes at Columbus State. And he was in the middle of a class when his nose started to bleed. So he just sort of stuffed some tissue up into his nose and left it. And five hours later, when his nose was still bleeding, uh, then, then he went to the emergency department. And that's when we found out that his body was very slow to metabolize that medication. I don't think it was heparin at that point, but I can't for the life of me think of what it was. Um, but they stopped the heparin at that point. And I think that's when they started him on Eliquis, which is actually an oral medication. So instead of injected medication, it's an oral medication. And they got that dose where they wanted it. Um, but as I recall, they only kept him on that medication for maybe six to eight months after the initial pulmonary embolism. They thought that pulmonary embolism in February of 2019 was so close to when he'd had the stem cell transplant in July of 2018, that maybe it was a one-time thing. Well, it wasn't. Um, so July, 2020. So just a few months of, ago from the time I'm recording this July, 2020, my dad had another pulmonary embolism. He was having chest pain. And so he went to, um, care point East for imaging. They found the embolisms in his lungs. And at that point they would not let him, he'd driven himself to his appointment because again, this is the summer of COVID. Um, and so he had driven himself to his appointment. My mom did not go with him. They would not let him drive himself over to OSU Maine. They called an ambulance to take him over to OSU Maine where he proceeded to sit in a wheelchair in the hallway of the emergency department for six and a half hours while waiting for someone to get to him. So I realize it is the, it is the height of coronavirus as we knew it in July of 2012, obviously it's much worse now. Um, but contrast, like just in my mind, contrasting July of 2020, a pulmonary embolism, it took seven hours after we knew what the problem was to get him started on the medication that we know he needs to treat it. Whereas in February of 2019, not only did he get a room in the emergency department in a reasonable amount of time, but he started treatment for his pulmonary embolism almost immediately. 
And then he was admitted to an inpatient bed and kept in the hospital until we had it under control until my mom and I had received education on how we're going to manage this at home. Like that was the normal care. When he had his second pulmonary pulmonary embolism in July of 2020, he spent seven hours waiting for treatment after the problem had been identified. He wasn't waiting for imaging. We knew what the problem was, um, but he was just waiting for care. Um, neither my mom or I could go with him. There were no visitors allowed in the emergency department. Um, and we lost communication with him because he had not planned on making such an adventure out of this. We didn't have a cell phone charger. So we had no way of knowing what was going on. Turns out you can call the emergency department and tell them my loved one is in there. Can you please locate them for me? Um, But this time my dad was not admitted to the hospital. There were no beds in the hospital to admit him to. There was nowhere to put him. He spent 36 hours under observation in the emergency department. Most of that time wearing a mask because he was waiting a test. He had to wear a mask until he got um, a COVID test to show that he was in fact negative for COVID. And um, all of that time spent hooked up to telemetry and ECG and all this stuff, because when you're under observation, you are hooked up to everything under the sun. And basically my dad was awake for 36 straight hours. It was a horrible experience. Um, So I I tell you that to, to pull in like, okay, so we started with platelets. Platelets were the problem. But then actually there's something wrong with his monocytes. And so we have leukemia. But in the process of treating that leukemia, we are again concerned with his platelets and his prothrombin time. And then after the leukemia is over, or we, we put it in remission anyway, we're back to worrying about his blood because he's having repeated pulmonary embolisms that require treatment. At this point, my dad will be staying on Eliquis on that medication that delays clotting time indefinitely um, because it would appear that the, the pulmonary embolism was not a one-time thing. Um, and so I, I, again, I tried to stick to the clinical, but it's, it's very topical to mention that, um, coronavirus is really impacting all patients, even those who do not have it, even those who are COVID negative, um, because there was no room in the end. My dad could not be, um, in the hospital and receive the kind of treatment he had received a year and a few months prior because of COVID. So, um, I tell you, it's a, he's fine. He's doing fine. Um, but to this day we're we're not seeing my dad because he has chronic graft versus host disease, which is treated with steroids, which leaves patients immunocompromised. And so since we can't, um, my husband works outside of the home, um, since we can't all work remotely and bubble ourselves as completely as we would like, um, it's, it's going to be a long time before we see my, my parents in person again. So with all of that, on that cheerful note, um, there's some more information for, if you're interested in about the types of leukemia, the leukemia and lymphoma society has great resources. I put this here simply because 
when my dad was diagnosed, I spent a lot of time with this website. I, I, I didn't pretend that I was an expert in hematology by any means, but when we were thrust into the world of leukemia, I really needed resources to help me understand what was going on. And so that was a really good one along with the national heart, lung and blood Institute. Um, because one of the biggest things I hope you can take away from this semester and this class as a whole is knowing where to look for more information when you need it. So in the context of healthy blood or leukemia and lymphoma, unhealthy blood, um, those would be two good places to look.